One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. The rest of you, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of James. It's in the New Testament. While you're doing that, let me give a final reminder. This is our last 10 o'clock service, which means that next week we start at 8.30 and 11.15. Those are our two service times. Um, If you've got kids ages 3 to kindergarten and they're heading out now to go to Holy Cross Kids Worship, know that that is only going to be taking place during the 8.30 service. Sorry. Uh, That's the only time we only have volunteer staff to be able to do one of them. So uh, that's when it's going to happen. So make sure what takes place during the 10 o'clock hour is what... um, what traditionally is called Sunday school, it's, it's, it's all under the heading of Holy Cross Kids because that's our children's ministry. But um, just, just to clarify that, if you have any questions on that or I've confused you even more, please just come see me, okay? Um, we've been looking this summer at what it means to do the Christian life. Like, what, the, what are those, what are those uh, key uh, actions that come along with being made right with God through Jesus alone? Now, notice as I said that, what I didn't say is those things that make us right with God, because Christians believe that nothing that we do makes us right with God. What makes us right with God is God. He does that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so Christians believe that what we do is always a response to being made right with God. It is always we do in light of what has been done for us. And this morning we conclude our series with how faith should work itself out in response to the vulnerable. Those who, because of either circumstances or because of their own choices, uh, are in a position of weakness in society. The scriptures are clear that because that was our position before God, and he came and blessed us, that we should do the same, that we are called to walk in mercy. So if you have your place in the book of James, as is our tradition, I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we stand under the preaching of it. Be reading uh, verses 22 through 27. As we do that, let's be mindful of the fact this is God's word. This is not just something we chose for ourselves and decided, let's go with this book instead of another. God's word lays claim on us. And let's add the faith and love to it so that it might do that this morning. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but indulges his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, keeping oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word, friend. It is given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, with all the stories we brought into this room, we pray that you would draw us into yours, that you would meet us where we are, and that you would apply and preach your gospel to our hearts. Holy Spirit, You are the Lord and giver of life, the only one who can work faith in us. And so we pray that you would be moving in us and through us and around us. And Lord, make yourself great by letting the gospel take root in our hearts and sending us out to be merciful. As you have declared that blessed are the merciful, 
for they will receive mercy. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would be present. Let Christ and his cross come to the fore and the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord, because you alone hold the words of eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, I'm really glad, honestly, that we're ending this series with this topic. Originally, this was supposed to take place in June, uh, but something else, kind of, there was some timely thing that we moved some stuff around. I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, we shifted this to the last one. But it is a great one to finish our series, The Walk On, because opinions are so diverse on it. Because anytime we talk about mercy, anytime we talk about deed ministry, and, as opposed to word ministry, some will think that we are caving in to social gospel, right? Which is... Uh, in, in many parts of, of uh, the evangelical tradition, at least, like that's, that's bad words. That's bad words. Uh, because what that means is um, giving up on proclaiming the gospel and instead just taking care of physical needs. But at the same time as that's going on, others will think that we're finally getting around to what matters instead of just this individual message of forgiveness, that finally we're getting around to what actually matters in the Christian life, which is doing good for others. And, and both camps are suspicious of the other, right? The folks who, who focus on proclamation, who focus on word ministry, they, they tend to be those who are in um, more, uh, let's say, evangelical traditions, and, and folks on the other, in the other camp kind of derisively call them conservatives. And, and folks who are more into the deed ministry tend to be, generally, more in line of uh, kind of the mainline Protestant traditions. And folks in the other camp derisively call them liberals. And so we, we just, you know, box each other in. But like in everything, I hope, you will hear at this church, the gospel strikes a third way that refuses to be boxed into either camp. Okay. So this morning we're looking at this in two, in two ways. There's an outline in your bulletin, as always. We're going to look at walking, walking out faith, and then secondly we're going to look at walking towards the weak. Okay? Walking out faith and walking towards the weak. Let's begin walking out the faith by looking at doing the word there in verse 22. James says, become doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Okay? Now, let's be clear on a couple things before we talk in depth about what he means. When, when James says the word, he doesn't just mean any word. He doesn't just mean like something he says. He is primarily talking about when he says the word, he means the Bible, which for him was, would be what we call our Old Testament. It is, it is the, the very word of God. When he talks about doing the word, that is what he means. But secondly, he's, he's clearly laying out two possible categories. You can be a doer or you can be one who hears only. And he's clear that those who don't do, those who are hearers only, are deceiving themselves. That there's, there's something false about what they think of themselves that their lack of doing kind of shows. Now, as I say that, as I say that James is telling us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, some of us are having our worst suspicions about Christianity confirmed because, um, you know, some of us have, have come to believe that Christianity is about keeping certain rules, right? We, we keep certain rules. And then we rage against people who don't like those rules. We leave others out, but it's really the keeping of certain rules that we're big on. Now, the most, more sophisticated version of this that's kind of very popular nowadays is, is the one that critiques the church for being selective about certain rules. Like, um, you know, why do you say homosexuality is wrong but not wearing polyester? Right? Like, those clothes of two weaves. Like, why, why is that okay? Um, and that is, th- those kind of thoughts are because we have, we have come to believe falsely that the Bible is a book of rules. That that's what the Bible is. It, it, is a, it is a book of rules on how to work your way back to God. But that is, that is false. The Bible is not a rule book. It's a story book. 
It's a story of how God has worked to get to us. It's not a rule book on how to get to Him. It's a story on how He's worked to get to us. And so within that story, those rules function in different ways. Some, are, some show who God is and who we are meant to be in His image. Others kind of show the nature of our problem. That our problem is not just guilt and it's not just corruption, but also alienation. And so they, they'll highlight those. And some of them show how to order a just society. But all of them are part of the story. And if you divorce them from the story, they no longer make sense. Here's what I mean. The Bible tells the story of how God created the world. How he made us as humanity to govern the world, to steward it, to, in a, in a sense, rule over it uh, in a dependent relationship with him. It tells how we were made to, to love him and to be loved by him. Uh, to, we were called to be in unbroken relationship with him, with not just him, but with each other, even with ourselves. Many of us have very broken relationships with ourselves. And, and even with creation. That creation was, was meant to kind of, for lack of a better word, do as we say. And we were meant to seek, it, seek its flourishing. Now, that sounds crazy to us only because things aren't like that anymore. Because the Bible also says that they are not like this because we turned away from God. We betrayed him. And when we did, everything went bad. Uh, in, In the garden, humanity decided that we wanted to define reality. We didn't want him to. That we wanted to define what was right and wrong. We didn't need anyone telling us what to do. And we wanted to be able to provide our own identity. We didn't want to be his image. We wanted to be his equal. So we didn't want an identity from him. We wanted one for ourselves. And so we turned away from him. We turned away from dependence on him and sought our own path. And that brought terrible consequences. Because God is a person, and because what we did was betray him, like any other betrayal, of course it brought guilt. Now, we probably don't like that. We don't like that because we weren't there, right? We're like, I wasn't there. Why am I held responsible for something I wasn't there for? But even in, you know, that, that doesn't change the fact it's true. But even if we don't grant that, we cannot but grant the fact that we have, we have done the same thing every day. And that is because not only did we become guilty at that moment, we also became broken. Because you see, the Bible talks about sin, and when I say sin, all of us think, okay, breaking the top three or the big ten or whatever. The Bible sees sin not just as actions we do, but a state that we are. It's not just things that we do, it's who we are. And so, Uh, We sin because we are sinners. We sin because we are broken, not because it's not that we become that when we sin. We're stuck. We're stuck in our independence from God. But God pursued us. And you see, that's the story of the Bible. That's really what the Bible's all about. It's about God's pursuit to fix what we messed up, to reconcile us to Himself, and to set His creation to rights. So you see, if we were made for dependence on God, then we can't fix the problem ourselves. That that just furthers the problem of independence. If we were made to depend on Him, then God is going to have to provide for us. God is going to have to deal with our guilt. He's going to have to overcome our brokenness. And that's what He did in Jesus. We were poor, we were helpless, we were needy, and He came for us. Because Christians believe that Jesus isn't just some great teacher, and He's certainly not like the King of Nice. I know that our culture kind of presents him as that, like Jesus is like the nicest guy that ever lived, but if you actually read the Gospels, you see that he broke the nice meter several times. He wasn't opposed to getting in your face about things because he wasn't there to be nice. He was there to rescue us. He's God in the flesh. Christians believe that God exists in, in one essence and three persons. One God, one singular God, existing in three persons. And the second person 
God the Son came to reconcile us to himself. And he did that not just by giving us rules to keep, because that would just further the problem, right? He gives us a rule book, says, go do this, then we're just as independent as we were before. He doesn't give us rules to keep. He came to save us. He lived the life that we couldn't. He died the death that we deserved, and then he rose again. He died in our place to rescue us from our guilt and, and, and the death that we had incurred because of sin. And so when James talks about doing the word, he's not talking about rules. He's talking about doing something in accord with this story. This story. Not some other. And not some list of maxims. This story. Doing the word means living in light of that truth. On the one hand, it certainly means believing certain things. God's the authority and not us. So when he calls something wrong, it's wrong whether or not we like it. Uh, that, that we have betrayed him and are in our need of rescue. It will mean believing that he's provided for that in Jesus, not because of anything we've done. And, and also that by placing our faith in Jesus, trusting in him instead of in our own actions, we can be made right with him. But it also means living as if you actually believe that. Living as if you actually believe that it's not the opinions of other people that make you right, but the work of Jesus. Living as if you actually believe that your identity comes not from your work or your marriage or your children, but from the work, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. James says if you're not living as if you believe those things, you are deceiving yourself that you actually believe them. And to help us, he gives us a metaphor. Look down at verses 23 to 25. He says, the one who is just a hearer is like someone who glances at himself in a mirror and then walking away forgets what he looks like. The one who's the doer is like someone who gazes at the perfect law of freedom. Now, in the English Standard Version, it translates both of the words there for the person who's looking in the mirror and the person who's looking in the law as look. Uh, they're not the same word, and they actually mean something very different. Uh, the word used of the man in the mirror means to glance. It means to look quickly. He looks at it and turns away, and then he forgets. Whereas the one who's looking uh, at, the, at the law, that the word means to, to like bend over and to stare at. And then when you add the word perseverance that he puts in there, you put those together. And it means to look at intently or to, to gaze. It's bending over and gazing into the law. And you know the difference, right? The difference between glancing and gazing, I mean, the difference is between what I know of my face and what I know of my wife's face. Right? I've been married 14 years, not a ton of time, but, it, but it's not bad either. Okay? I know every inch of my wife's face. I have gazed long and hard at her. She is captivating to me, and the longer I look and the more I see, the more I want to see. My own face? Who cares? That's your problem. I don't need to worry about that. Okay? Now, where we struggle is that the gazing that he's talking about comes when he says they gaze us into the perfect law of freedom. And that to us sounds completely oxymoronic. How can you have a law that's freedom? How can you have a perfect law that provides freedom? Well, it, it, it sounds ridiculous to us, but in James's world it didn't. Because biblically, being free doesn't mean being able to do uh, whatever you want whenever you want to do it. It's like no restrictions. Being free, actually, in fact, the Bible calls that slavery bondage to your own heart. Uh, freedom in the scriptures is um, doing what we were made for. Is doing what we were made for. And so the scripture gives us that not only in rules. It doesn't just tell us in rules what we were made for, but in seeing what God does. In pictures like that picture in Ezekiel 16 that Andrew read this morning. 
of God coming to Israel in the midst of her, her, God coming to his people as they were, there was nothing to commend them to him. Didn't deserve anything in coming and showing them mercy. We see in the Bible not just rules, but we see the God that we were made to be like. And James says the hearer is like the dude who doesn't remember what he looks like. Who looks in the mirror and then moves away and never remembers a thing. But the one who gazes, the one who gazes, is captivated by. And then enacts the story of Scripture, that is the doer of the word. Okay? So here's my question to you this morning. Are you glancing or are you gazing? Are you glancing at the story of Scripture or are you gazing into it? Because a gazer will see her place in that story. We'll see the greatness and majesty of God. We'll see her brokenness and her neediness before God. Her inability to make up for that betrayal of Him. But she will also see His outrageous grace for her in Jesus. A glancer, on the other hand, sees rules, ideas, theories, And then works hard to keep them, thinking that he can buy off God. And that in buying him off, God will owe him. A gazer sees all the ways in which she has failed, and yet also sees how loved she is in Jesus. A glancer sees those points of the law, what he agrees with, conveniently ignores the rest, and thinks God is lucky to have such a righteous fellow as he on his team, right? A gazer sees the God at the center of the story and she wants to be formed into his image. A glancer sees himself and assumes that the God of heaven and earth is made in his image. So are you glancing or are you gazing this morning? If you've been glancing, I want to invite you this morning to more. Because the Bible is not what you think. It is not a list of things for you to do to get to God. It is the story of all that God has done to get to you. It is not an invitation for you to get your life straight. It is an invitation to accept and receive what God has done to get you straight with Him. But there's more because James isn't done. He turns now to tell us what he thinks being a doer, being a gazer will result in. And it it is in walking towards the weak. Look down at verse 26 for worthless religion. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but instead indulges his heart, this person's religion is worthless. All right? Now, this is really... uh, I need you to listen close because this is a little different from what we expect. In our world, we connect religion and ethics, right? Like, they go together. As a matter of fact, for many of us, religion equals ethics. Like, religion is just being a really good person. Or um, being spiritual means being really nice. In the Roman world, in the world that James was, was uh, writing this letter to, or, or preaching to, depending on how you would take it, the, the two things never went together. Religion and ethics never went. In the Roman world, there was no ethic. Religion was about what the ceremonies you did to placate the gods. The only shared ethic in Roman religion was patriotism. You can do whatever you want, however you want to do it, as long as you are loyal to the nation-state. If you're not then you're an atheist, right? This word word, uh, religion that that James uses only appears six times in the New Testament. Two are in one verse by itself, and three of them are right here in this passage. This is a rare word because it didn't make sense to most of those who heard it. 
Like I said, religion was all about the ceremonies you kept to placate the gods. So when James talks about worthless religion and he attaches to it what we are doing, it would sound strange to most that heard it. And now some of, some of our translations have this verse a little different. Instead of saying indulging their heart, they say the person is deceiving their heart. Now, scholars will tell you, if you're wondering why that was different in your reading and when I read, scholars will tell you that this is a very awkward verse in the, in the original and that indulging actually makes more sense out of the language uh, than, than the idea of deceiving. But what James is doing here is he's setting up a contrast between two people who profess Christian faith. In other words, he's continuing that glancer-gazer distinction for us. But now he's saying, if your quote-unquote religion is Roman, in other words, if it has no impact on your life, if it's just meant to placate God, it is worthless. And in fact, that word worthless can mean idolatrous, which means it's false. It's not even the same God you're worshiping. So this dude is saying, if you think you are religious, but you are simply indulging yourself it is worth nothing. You with me? If you're, listen to me, if your faith is about you, if your faith is about your gifts, what you get out of church and what the, what the church is doing for you or, or how God has failed you, then your faith is in you. And James says it is worthless. It's worthless. So what would a worthwhile religion look like? Look down at verse 27. He says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble or affliction or suffering, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, let me say one thing about this before I dig in. Most of our translations put that in two different statements, right? It's to visit widows and orphans and to keep yourself unstained from the world. That word and is not in the original Greek. It's not there. We've added it in. To say to keep yourself unstained from the world is a way of explaining what he means by visiting widows and orphans. In other words, to not do that would mean that we are stained by the world. Okay? So, anyway, here's what he's saying. First, those words pure and undefiled. Those are words that would have been normal to to, uh, folks who would become Christians from a, from a Jewish background who had accepted Jesus from a Jewish background because they are words associated for things that are set apart for God. I know we hear pure and undefiled and we think morally pure, but this is the kind of language that went, up, went along with um, uh, like lampstands in the temple and uh, forks. You know, it's like last time I checked, my fork is not immoral. You know, and so what it means is not necessarily morality, immorality, though it can include that. What it means primarily is things that are set apart for God's use that are distinct, that are separate. And so what what he means, uh, what he means is, this is the kind of religion God uses. This is the kind of practice that shows you're part of the story. Uh, Next thing, that word visit, when he says to visit widows and orphans, that is a very specific word. Uh, It it is is used consistently in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about, um, not not when um, someone comes to hang out, it doesn't mean coming for a visit, sitting down, grabbing some tea. It's not just chilling with people. Like, to visit in the Old Testament is when God came to rescue. God visited his people with salvation. That is what he did. And so, and in fact, um, Jesus uses this word when he's talking in Matthew 25 in this passage that is uh, rather alarming, honestly. And he says that um, the folks who ended up 
on his right, <laughs> on the good side on the last day, are those who visited him when he was in jail and you know, whatnot. In other words, who, who came and brought help, salvation. Okay? Lastly, widows and orphans, and then I'll draw these strings together. Now, we know what these words mean, but we have to understand a little more than just kids without parents and wives without husbands. Because in the ancient world, children and women were socially vulnerable. It wasn't like today where, where um, there were legal protections for kids and, uh, and, the, and that women had an equal kind of part in society where they could go out, get a career, get a job, and everything would, would go well, and, and they had anti-discrimination laws and all this stuff. They, they had no such things. They were completely socially vulnerable. Kids couldn't get a job. Women couldn't get a job. Uh, there, was, there was nothing for them to do, and they had no voice in the society. They had no legal recourse for anything. They were completely vulnerable. But what's more, uh, the word orphan doesn't necessarily mean parentless. It means fatherless. Again, because of what a father, what a man would mean in that society. And so you could have a widow and an orphan living in the same home. You have an orphan whose mother is a widow. It meant socially vulnerable. And so James means coming. When he says to visit them, what he means is coming to provide for the flourishing of those who have no one to provide for them. That is what he says is worthwhile religion in the eyes of God. The question is why, right? I mean, it's not exactly self-evident that this should be something that says, you know, this is what it means to walk with Jesus, whereas this is not. It's not self-evident that those things should be true. I mean, heck, if, if Nietzsche and, and Darwin are right, then there's no reason we should protect the socially vulnerable. In fact, what we should do is kick them to the curb because... You know, they're weighing the rest of us down. So why is it that this, according to James, is in line with faith in Jesus and not other things? The reason is because, friends, of how it accords with the story. Remember, he talks about being doers of the word. And this accords with the story. Think with me. The story is how God sought us in our distress. He came to us in our helplessness and provided for us. We could offer him nothing. But he came and he sought us. He provided for us and he brought us into his family. Which is why James says the kind of religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father, by the way. See, it's like that's what was true of us. We were weak. We were helpless. We had nothing. And he came and he brought us into his family. Why is this kind of religion set apart for God? Because it is the opposite of indulging yourself. It is imaging the God who rescued us. If you've experienced the free grace of God in Jesus through the gospel, it will propel you out to show grace to others. Listen to me. God is not interested in being placated. You can't, and he's not asking you to. What pleases him as a father, as God the Father, is the same thing that pleases me as a father. When my children... The children that I love begin seeking to be like me. Not to make me love them. Not to make me their father. But because I do love them. Because I'm already their father. Now, let me get specific with you, if I can. Okay, Let's talk about visiting the vulnerable. In James's day, it was widows and orphans who were in need of visitation. But it isn't much different today. Because any time that men are allowed to shirk their responsibility, 
we leave socially and societally vulnerable people in our wake. Anytime, and look, we've, we've now gone through at least two generations of telling guys, this isn't about you. Don't worry about this. This child isn't yours anyway. This is someone else's responsibility. You don't have to worry about it. And every time that happens, we will leave vulnerable people in our wake. Now, most of us will go home from this today and we'll, we'll have the convenience of being able to pretend that such vulnerable people are a theory and not worry about it. They are not. School just started around here in, in, in Stanton. Uh, right before school started, Holy Cross joined with our mother church in Waynesboro Tabernacle. We, we um, worked together to stuff 108 backpacks for foster kids in our area. 108? That's a lot. That does not even cover every child in foster care in our area, Stanton, Waynesboro, Augusta County. It's a lot of kids. And it didn't even cover them. Those are not theories. Those are children. Then we have the single moms in our area struggling to raise children and be the primary breadwinner. On top of that, we have some of the most vulnerable who are our kids who are having kids. And that's just in our area. I'm not even expanding it globally. I don't want us leaving here so overwhelmed that we're, we are moved to inaction. So if you are here this morning and the Lord is stirring in your heart to visit the vulnerable, let me give you some ways, real practical ways. I'm going to give you three very practical ways. Okay? There's a ministry run, uh, kind of organized by one of our uh, members here in this church, It's called Young Lives. Young Lives is a ministry of young life that serves teen moms, girls who have uh, had babies. uh, And and what Young Lives does is it it meets them where they are, goes where they are, doesn't ask them to come to us, goes where they are, meets them not just with the gospel of Jesus, though that is central, but also practical mentoring into how to actually bear the responsibility that is now upon them. Okay? Um, If you have any interest in in helping with that, okay? And that can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean everything from sitting on a committee of people to help lead that to, to um, uh, actually mentoring girls to just um, supporting things financially. If you have any interest in that, I'm going to ask you to see Emily Lasser. Emily, can you just raise your hand real quick? She's embarrassed, but that's okay. Emily's in the back. Go see her. She, will, she would love to get you plugged in. And if you're like, I don't, I feel a little awkward seeing her, see me, because I'm the committee chair for Young Lives. I'd love to get you plugged in, too. I'll probably just pass you to her, but that's okay. If, you're, if, if that's not you, though, because some of you are feeling a little bit more of a tug. Some of you are feeling the tug that says, I, you know, Rick, we've been thinking about this. We've been, it's been bouncing around the back of my head, but I've been avoiding it, and now I can't. And that's bringing the fatherless into your home. Like, actually seeking to adopt or seeking to be a foster parent, providing a refuge for children who who have nothing. If that's you this morning, can I tell you, you know, because most of the time when we get into those situations, we think, 
Uh, this sounds, okay, maybe that's, but I don't know where to start and what ultimately that happens. We go, I don't know where to start, so I, I'm just not going to do anything. And it's our way of kind of denying that the Lord is moving. The Lord is moving, and I'm going to tell you where to start, okay? And I'm going to point you to someone else in our congregation. Her name is Lynn Vogan, okay? Lynn, would you raise your hand, okay? Lynn is one of the leaders of a joint ministry that we do with Tabernacle and Waynesboro called Orphan Hope. Should be self-evident what they do. She would love to point you in the right direction uh, of how to both uh, either get into the foster system or move towards adoption, okay? Lastly, if you're like, uh, Rick, teen moms isn't me, um, and I'm, our family's just really not in a position to, to bring another kid in the home, or we're long past that in our age bracket, but I really would love to help. Um, how, do I, how do I help at-risk folks? Let me tell you a way that you can instantly help at-risk kids in our community. There are three of these things called elementary schools. They're bizarre creations. Brick, big, and every kid goes there. It's weird. You can go to any one of our three elementary schools in Stanton, Bessie Weller, A.R. Ware, or McSwain, and they would love to have your help. Listen to me. If you want to know, how do I, how do I get to where, you know, I... Rick, I don't even know any at-risk children. I'm telling you, they all go to school. <laughs> like, all you have to do is go in there, call the principal, or, or, or walk into the office and say, you know what, I don't, have, uh, I don't have a ton of time, but I have a couple hours a week. Maybe I could volunteer. Kids who have no real adult attention at home would love to just have you come and read to them. Read to them. You understand that is, that is not normal to have adults reading to kids in our city. It's not that hard. Jesus came at our most vulnerable. He came when we did not deserve his attention. And he provided for our deepest needs. And so out of gratitude and a desire to be like him, we move out to do the same, to walk after him. We walk in mercy. Would you pray with me? Lord, for wherever we are in this room, I pray that you would... As I, as I trust you have done throughout this whole summer, form us into a community of people. Form us into a church that walks after you. Whether that is walking in repentance, walking in faithfulness, whether it is walking in sexual wholeness, or in uh, walking in the word, or whether it's walking in mercy. I pray that you would form us into a people who follow hard after you because of everything that you have done for us. For my friends in this room who have who have never placed their faith in you, I pray that you would work that in them even now. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to place our faith in you again, faith that moves us out to be a blessing to our city. For you did not create us for ourselves. You did not create us even for our little community here. You created us for the world. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work in us that we might move out in that way. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.